Charlie Campbell has has been at this for some time, and uh, so I'm I'm just excited to have him here with us and for him to share um, just uh, the Word of God that goes along with this topic. That it's it's a question that is on so many different uh, people's minds and in the world around us today. And no doubt, perhaps this week you've had this question that if God is good, if God is loving, why does He allow? evil, bad things to happen. And so um, please help me welcome my friend Charlie Campbell from Always Be Ready Ministries. Well, good morning. Thank you for the warm welcome. It's great to see you guys again. It's been about five years, I think, since I was here last, at least in person. Uh, apparently, I was on the screen uh, last year. But um, great to see all of you again, and i um, excited to uh, talk about a very important topic. This is a question that is probably the most asked question um, amongst non-Christians in the world today. Why does God allow evil and suffering if he really is loving and does exist? So we are going to tackle that. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. The problem of evil as it is uh, commonly called, is the most popular objection that atheists and critics of Christianity raise against the existence of God. Many critics of the Christian faith believe that the existence of evil and suffering in the world disproves the existence of the all-powerful, all-loving God described in the Bible. Atheists commonly say things like this. If God exists and is loving, he would put an end to evil. Uh, if he's all-powerful, he could put an end to evil. Since evil persists, the all-loving, all-powerful God described in the Bible must not exist. Have you heard people reason this way? Well, this morning I want to respond to this objection and some of the other tough questions related to the problem of evil and suffering. And my hope in doing so is that it will be an encouragement to you because Christians wrestle with this topic as well, but that our time together this morning will also help equip you with some ways that you can answer these kinds of tough questions and objections yourself when God gives you the opportunity to interact with friends and family members, neighbors, coworkers who bring this up. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll... Uh, work our way through some of these. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, this morning, God, we're thankful to have this time to gather together with our brothers and sisters in the faith and to worship you and now to consider uh, what your word has to say regarding this topic and, and then also respond to some of these tough intellectual challenges. And God, we do pray that you would use this time to uh, encourage and instruct and uh, bless, but we also pray that this time would be uh, comforting for people who perhaps among us here today are wrestling with this issue. God, we pray that you would uh, minister to them. We pray that uh, this would also be just a time of equipping, Lord, that we would leave here better equipped as ambassadors of Christ to talk to people about this thorny issue. So, Lord, bless this time we do ask now. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's tackle this first objection that critics raise, the one that I brought up a moment ago. They say, if God exists and is loving, he would put an end to evil. If he's all-powerful, he could put 
an end to evil. Since evil persists, the all-loving, all-powerful God described in the Bible must not exist. Well, I disagree. The existence of evil behavior in the world is actually evidence for the existence of God, not against. Atheists create a quandary for themselves when they point at certain activities in the world and then say, if God existed, he would not allow all this evil to take place. Here's the problem. No activity can truly be evil apart from the existence of God. Let me repeat that. No activity can truly be evil apart from the existence of God. Why not? Well, without God, without a transcendent moral lawgiver, humans would not have any objective standards or real laws by which we might even determine a particular activity to be evil. For example, we would not be able to conclude that kidnapping children and murdering them is truly evil, that which is truly morally wrong. In a godless universe, we would not be able to determine that slavery or racism or stealing or genocide or rape or child molestation are evil. It would just be one man's opinion against another's. And yet these activities are regularly condemned, called evil, and known to be evil, even by our atheist friends. Well, these evil activities verify for us that there are actual, objective, real moral laws or boundaries in the universe. But there can be no such thing as objective moral laws apart from a moral lawgiver, God. So the reality of evil in the world actually turns out to be evidence for God not against God, which is amazing, really, when you consider it, because this is commonly thought to be atheist's strongest argument against the existence of God. Well, our friend says that that's an interesting way to look at it, Charlie, but if God exists, he should put an end to the evil and suffering. I agree, and he will. Just because God has not yet put an end to evil and suffering does not mean that he will not put an end to evil. The Bible tells us that God is going to put an end to the evil and suffering that's taking place on the earth. Notice with me there in your Bibles, if you would, I had to turn to Revelation chapter 21. I want you to notice what verse 4 says. The apostle John tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth that God's going to create, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So God is going to end evil and suffering. It's just going to happen according to his timing, not ours. Well, Charlie, that's just great, but why doesn't he just intervene right now and put an end to all the evil we see? Well, think through this with me. For God to put an end to evil and suffering, God would have to stop every single act that causes any of the suffering. 
To do that, he would have to stop all of those who cause the suffering. This would include anyone who's ever stolen anything, anyone who's ever hurt someone's feelings, anyone who's lied, alcoholics, drug abusers, people who cheat on their taxes, bad drivers, bad cooks. (laughs) We could go on and on. And the list would not only include those who got caught causing some of the world's suffering, but all of those who never got caught. And the list would include not only those who broke our government's laws, but all of those persons who fell short of God's moral standards of righteousness. That list of people that God would have to put a stop to would be very long, wouldn't it? It would have about 7.4 billion names on the list. The total earth population today wouldn't that mean he'd have to put a stop to you too haven't you by your own actions caused at least some of the suffering in the world today and if that is the case then you should be thankful god allows evil for the time being god has not destroyed evil because he would have to destroy us By permitting evil and suffering to continue for the time being, God is actually showing the world mercy. If you want to know what it looks like when God finally determines that evil has run its course and that it's time to intervene, read the book of Revelation. It's pretty ugly. Is that what we're asking God to do right now? We need to be careful what we wish for. Now, as I said a moment ago, there is coming a day when God will stop evil. He'll judge unrepentant sinners, put them away forever, and create a new earth, the Bible says, where there will no longer be any death, mourning, crying, or pain. In the meantime, though, God is actually using the suffering that exists for good. Suffering people often turn to God and receive the kind of help that they truly need a soul-saving relationship with God himself. And we'll talk more about how God works in and through suffering a little bit later. Well, our friend says, let's suppose then that there is a God. It can't be the God of the Bible. For Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, says that Yahweh creates evil. Surely a loving God would never create evil. Why don't you turn with me, if you would, back to the Old Testament book, of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 45. This isn't a verse that your average non-Christian friend is likely to bring up with you in a conversation, but it is a verse that atheists commonly have on their websites and that they commonly bring up in debates when it comes to this topic. So I'd like to quickly address it. Isaiah 45, verse 7, notice what God says. I'll put it on the screen for you as well. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Well, the critic says, there you go. If the God of the Bible is the creator of evil, as Isaiah 45, 7 indicates, then I don't want anything to do with him. A loving God would never create evil. Well, What are we to think about that? Well, in response to that, first off, it's important to point out that atheists almost always quote this passage of Scripture from which translation of the Bible? 
the King James translation of the Bible, published in 1611, because it reads slightly different in the modern translations. If you have a King James translation of the Bible, you might circle that word evil in verse 7. The Hebrew word there translated evil by the King James translators is the word ra. A better translation of ra is actually adversity or calamity or disaster, and that is the way that the modern translations of the Bible translate the word. In Isaiah 45, verse 7, God was not saying he creates evil or does anything that is morally wrong. He was speaking of the adversity or the calamity that he sends as a judgment on occasion on the wicked that are deserving of that punishment. When God meets out or sends a particular judgment on a wicked city or nation or person in the form of a calamity or disaster, there's nothing unjust or morally wrong about it. Thousands of years ago, a man who walked by the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and saw dead people all over the place and smoke rising from the two cities might have wondered, not knowing what just happened, he might have wondered, why does God allow all this evil and death and destruction? Well, in reality, the disaster he saw was not the result of some random natural occurrence, nor was it the result of evil men slaughtering innocent people. It was actually a direct and righteous judgment of God on evil. So, Charlie, you think that God just has the right to send disasters and calamities uh, on cities like this? Yes, I do. And here's why. God is sovereign over life. He created the planet and all of its inhabitants, and he has the right to do with creation whatever he deems best. The Bible says that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of exceedingly grave sins. They had become a dangerous cancer and threat to humanity. They would not repent. So after God removed the lone upright family, Lot's family, God destroyed the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was nothing evil about the judgment or the calamity, the Ra in Hebrew, That came upon them. God is never the author or creator of evil. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 says that everything God does is holy and just. Everything. He's never the creator of evil or that which is morally wrong. Well... The, the critic says that that may explain that verse, Isaiah 45. But, but if God is the creator of everything, as you Christians suggest, and evil is something, then how can you say that God is not the one responsible for the existence of evil? Good question. Let me ask you a question, congregation. A little Bible quiz here this morning. We're going to see how well taught they are here, Raw. <laughs> is God the creator of everything? Who says yes? Who won't raise your hand this morning no matter what I ask? A few of you? Okay. (laughs) Okay, good. So you're a well-taught congregation. Good to know. Some churches I teach at, people are going, no, 
<laughs> the answer is yes, right? Uh, Colossians 1, verse 16 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible things even. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Uh-oh. If God created all things, as this verse and others teach, does that mean then that God did create evil? Well, let me ask you another question. Is evil something? Is evil something? What is evil? Are are there evil molecules or atoms floating around? Is evil some slimy blue goo that accidentally gets on people and causes them to do terrible things? No, evil is not something you can touch. The Bible teaches that evil is not a thing God created, but rather a departure from the way things ought to be. That's a good biblical definition of evil. It's a departure from the way things ought to be. In other words, we might say that evil is a nonconformity to the way things ought to be, a nonconformity to God's will, a, a deviation from God's standard. That's why the word sin is defined as missing the mark. The ideal is to hit the mark, God's moral standard. When you fall short of that, you commit evil. You're deviating from God's will. So in response to the critics' charge that because God is the creator of all things, he then too must have been the one who created evil, we respond with with this, that God is, yes, he is the creator of all things, but because evil is not a thing, it doesn't follow that God is responsible for the existence of evil. Well, if God's not directly responsible for the origin or existence of evil, then who or what is? Well, to answer the question concisely, people. People are responsible. Our relatives, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman that God made, were the first humans to depart from God's will. And we have been doing the same thing ever since. So, Charlie, you're saying that the Bible places the blame for evil at the feet of humans, not God? Right. Okay, but the Bible says that everything God created was good. How could Adam and Eve have done that which was evil if they were truly good? Well, in response to that, the Bible does say that everything God made was good. In fact, Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 31 says that everything God made was very good, and that included Adam and Eve. But we disagree with the skeptic's conclusion that good creatures like Adam and Eve are incapable of doing that which is evil. We believe that one of the good qualities God created mankind with was free will. Freedom to choose between opposing options, morally speaking, is a good thing. God gave that freedom to Adam and Eve, and he gives us that freedom as well, and even atheists today acknowledge that freedom is good. So God created mankind with free will. Evil originated and continues today because of what humans, free moral agents, did and continue to do with their free will. Evil did not originate with God having made a less than perfect world as described in the book of Genesis. 
All right, Charlie, but I still think if, if God exists, he's the one to blame for the presence of evil. According to the Bible, he's the one who created the people with the free will who commit evil. Well, let me ask you this. If a man stabs somebody with a knife, who's to blame? The knife company who made the knife or the man who did the stabbing? Well, obviously, the fault lies with the man who misused the knife, not the knife maker. Well, just as the knife maker is not to blame for the misuse of the knife, the same is true when it comes to the presence of evil in the world. The world God made was very good. The sin, evil, and suffering that's come into the world is the result of mankind's misuse of his freedom. And not only did evil originate with mankind's misuse of freedom in the Garden of Eden, the majority of evil today is the result of men continuing to misuse their freedom. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, most of the evil and suffering in the world today has been produced by human beings with whips, guns, bayonets, gas chambers, and bombs. Think of how much better life could be on the planet if there were no criminals, no corrupt politicians, no racists, no gangs, no iron-fisted dictators, no terrorists, no wars, no drug dealers, drunk drivers, absent fathers, child molesters, and the list could go on and on. Think of the billions of dollars that could then be spent improving the quality of life for people if that money did not have to be spent fighting wars and terrorism and criminals and all of that. Well, that kind of life is coming during the thousand-year reign of Christ, and we look forward to that. Now, Charlie, hold on. I have a question. As a student of the Bible, it seems to me that some of the evil and suffering in the world can be attributed to the work of the devil, not just mankind misusing his freedom. Your thoughts? Well, I agree. I think a lot of the evil and suffering in the world can be attributed to the work of Satan, probably more than we realize. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, The whole, not most or part, the whole world lies in the power or uh, is under the sway, the influence of the evil one. Satan has a tremendous influence on world affairs for evil. In John 8, 44, Jesus said that the devil is a murderer and a liar. In John 10, 10, Jesus says that the devil comes to steal and to kill, and to destroy. So it's safe to conclude that some of the killing, some of the stealing, some of the destruction we see happening in the world today is a result of his work. Well, Charlie, why why does God allow him the power to do this? Well, there are a variety of reasons, and I'm going to talk about some of them in a few minutes, but I'm afraid that mankind is again much to blame for Satan's successes in carrying out his schemes. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and what will he do? He'll flee from you. He'll want nothing to do with you. 
When people refuse to submit their lives to God, when they refuse to resist Satan's temptations, they open themselves up to be agents of harm. The Bible speaks of those who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. If people would submit to God and resist the devil, Satan would be hugely limited in what he could accomplish today. Now, more could be said about this, obviously, and I'll continue to develop these thoughts. But critics raise another good objection or question. They say, if the evil and suffering in our world originated with mankind's misuse of freedom and continues because of our misuse of freedom, why didn't God just create a world without human freedom? That's another good question. God certainly could have created a world without freedom, but a world without freedom would have been a world without humans. Would it have been a place without hate? Could God have created a world without hate? Yes, of course. Could he have created a world where there was no suffering? Well, obviously the answer is yes, but it also would have been a world of robots. Why is that? Well, to guarantee a world free of suffering, God would have to create a world in which sin that that brings about suffering never takes place. Well, to do that, God would have to create creatures without free will, without the freedom to sin. The creatures would have to be then creatures that God pre-programmed to always do exactly what God wanted them to do. Could God have created creatures like that? easily an army of robots that just marched around the planet 24 hours a day singing worship songs he could have made those kinds of creatures but then think about it the fellowship between those creatures and god the worship that those creatures would sing out 24 hours a day it all would have been meaningless to god In order for a meaningful, genuine, loving relationship to exist between God and people, people must be free. Free to love him or free to hate him. If there's no choice allowed or free will, love is not meaningful. So God saw it worth it to grant mankind real freedom. You can freely love him today or hate him. You can freely obey him or sin against him. Although that freedom God has given us allows for the possibility of evil and suffering, it also allows for real love, the highest good in the universe to take place. Without freedom, there's no such thing as love. If your husband or your wife is actually forced at gunpoint to say yes when you propose to her, How would you ever know if there was really any love there? She had no choice. She has to have a choice in order for it to be meaningful to you. And a world in which real freedom exists is the very kind of world most people want today. Ask your coworkers this question sometime. Would you like God to force you to live your life in accord with all of his holy commandments 24 hours a day with no freedom to do otherwise? Well, we know what the answer is going to be to that question, right? Most people are going to say, no way. Most people want the option to move freely about throughout this life. So in this respect, God has actually given mankind the very world that mankind actually wants to live in, 
a world in which true freedom exists. Unfortunately, our misuse of that God-given freedom has led to so much suffering. All right, well, yes, freedom may be good, Charlie. There is a lot of evil that results from mankind's misuse of it, but I have a hard time believing in a God who would allow hurricanes and earthquakes and other natural evils. Well, in response to this, first off, I'll point out that none of these things, hurricanes or earthquakes, are inherently evil. There's nothing immoral about an earthquake or hurricane. A lot of times, the suffering related to these natural phenomenon is closely connected again to man's exercise of his own free will. What am I talking about? Well, for example, take Hurricane Katrina from a few years ago there down in the Gulf. If you build a city like New Orleans on soft sand, silt, and clay, straddling the Mississippi River just inland from the ocean, several feet under sea level, in an area known to flood, you are going to have some serious problems. Don't blame God when the whole city ends up underwater. We need big storms. They bring lots of fresh water up from the ocean to water hundreds of miles of dry wheat and corn fields so millions of humans can have food to eat. There's nothing wrong with large storms. Well, what about earthquakes? Well, again, there's nothing evil about an earthquake. In fact, geologists tell us that tectonic plate activity is good for the health of the planet. The relief of the Earth's internal pressure is what keeps the planet from exploding. The movement of the Earth's plates also recycles nutrients that collect in the ocean and returns them back to the continents. In order for plants to grow and to continue to nourish humans, the crust of the Earth must be replenished. But... If you decide to build a skyscraper in San Francisco, right near a fault line where major earthquakes are known to strike, you can expect some serious problems once or twice a century, and we know that. God's not forcing anybody to live in a tall building on top of a fault line. I think the angels sometimes wonder what in the world we're doing. I think they're probably looking down going, Have they not read about the major earthquake that hit this city about 100 years ago? Thousands of people died in the city of San Francisco, and they just rebuilt the city right in the same place. The San Andreas Fault runs right through that area. We've decided to build a city there. Uh, God's not forcing us to live there in tall buildings. (laughs) You may have heard that on January... 2010, a 6.5 earthquake hit Northern California just three days before the 7.0 quake in Haiti. Not a single person died in the California quake, and an estimated 230,000 people died in the earthquake in Haiti. Why such a difference in the death tolls, 230,000 to zero? Well, there were a few factors. The California quake was not quite as powerful as the one in Haiti, and the population density of the areas was different. But in the United States, we place a high value on human life, 
uh, and we take human safety very seriously. So unlike many countries in the world today, we have very strict building codes. We send out building inspectors. We come up with evacuation plans. We offer first aid courses, and we have standards for construction materials. And as a result, many of our buildings, especially the newer ones built under these up-to-date building codes, are much safer when an earthquake hits. When a country like Haiti that's been run into the ground by corrupt politicians does not follow stringent building codes and is largely unable to because their government has squandered the billions of dollars in aid that's been sent to it in the past, a lot of people unfortunately are going to die when the earth's plates shift. We shouldn't blame God for the death toll. Well, Charlie, what about tsunamis? The suffering that tsunamis bring is not the result of corrupt politicians. Well, again, there's nothing inherently evil about a tsunami. They occasionally happen as a result of tectonic plate activity, and we all know that. If you choose to build a home right at sea level on the beach, you'll have to live with that decision. That view is nice, but you have to realize there could be trouble. We shouldn't blame God when a large wave rolls ashore. But Charlie, even if the suffering that comes when buildings fall and cities flood is connected to the decisions we make and even our sin, couldn't God stop some of these events? He certainly could. And I suggest that he does. I believe God does stop or prevent certain events. Life on our planet could certainly be much worse. But when God does prevent tragedies, loss of life, and so on, what happens? Well, life continues on as though God hasn't done a thing. Who knows what madman might have been headed to Refuge Fellowship this morning to shoot this place up. He saw that I was speaking here and he hates me or whatever, and he was intent on causing harm here in this place. But I saw several people in this place praying this morning that God would have his hand on this place, that he would cover this place, that he'd protect this place, that he'd bless the teaching and all of that, right? And now, who knows? Maybe that guy's still fixing his flat tire out there on the 15 freeway. But look at what's happening. To the onlooker here today, it appears as though God hasn't done a thing. It appears as though God hasn't stopped anything. It's just another great day at Refuge Fellowship. Well, Charlie, if God exists, maybe he should put up a visible sign or something to let us know that he's stopping or preventing something. You mean like one of these? A rainbow? God created the rainbow, the Bible says, to remind us of his mercy and promise to never flood the world again. And what have people done with that sign? They have hijacked the rainbow and now proudly display it as a symbol for their sexual promiscuity. God have mercy on those people. But when God does prevent a tragedy, a good portion of humanity just goes on their way, engaging in sin, ignoring their creator, missing out on a relationship with him, thinking there's no need for God. There's no need for God. And as this mercy and grace continues in their lives, many people think, well, who needs God? Everything's great. 
the sun is shining, my house is standing, I've got a good job, a terrific spouse, money in the bank. Life is wonderful. (laughs) I don't need your Christianity. And then they die. And judgment falls on them for their sins. And they end up in hell. That's not good. That's not good. God does not want a person to live a carefree, comfortable life only to then wake up on the other side of death still in his sins. So God, in his wisdom, does permit and even ordain some suffering and much good comes as a result. Allow me to share with you four concise ways God uses suffering for good. Four ways God uses suffering for good. We have a much longer list on our website at alwaysbeready.com. But for time's sake this morning, let me just narrow it down to four. Number one, God uses suffering to help advance the gospel. God uses suffering to help advance the gospel. In Philippians chapter one, the apostle Paul said this in verse 12 and following. He said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, the bad things, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it, the gospel, has become evident to the whole palace guard. The Apostle Paul was suffering unjustly in a Roman prison when he wrote this letter to the church in the city of Philippi. And he writes to the Philippians and he tells them, he says, don't worry about me. He even tells them later to rejoice because he says, my suffering here is working out for the furtherance of the gospel. God was using Paul's adverse, difficult circumstances to help get the gospel out. First to the Roman prison guards and then to wherever it would spread from there. On another occasion, Mentioned in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul said it was, quote, because of a bodily illness. Ever suffered with that? (laughs) It was because of a bodily illness I preached the gospel to you the first time. Apparently, if Paul had not been suffering from some sort of physical condition that required him to divert his course and stop in the region of Galatia, the people of Galatia may have never heard the gospel. In God's eyes, it's far better that one man or woman suffer for a short time here in this life than a large group of people suffer for all eternity. Are you suffering in some way during this season of life? Do you find yourself going through some adverse circumstances? There may be people whom you love people whom you've been praying for now for years who may be drawn into a relationship with God as a result of seeing you walk through the valley that you're in with the good shepherd. Your life might shine so brightly to them. They might think, I could never have that kind of joy and peace if I went through that. I need to know the God that they worship. That has happened several times. And this is one of the reasons God allows trials and adversity in our lives to advance the gospel. And Christian, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you in the valley? What's the worst thing? You die? Death is humanity's most feared enemy, isn't it? But Christian, we have a totally different perspective on death 
than non-believers. For us, for us, death is no longer something to be feared because we've been given everlasting life. Death is just the door that transitions us into the kingdom of God. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, to depart and be with Christ, Paul said, is very much better in Philippians 1. Verse 23, so we don't look at death like the world does. Do we sorrow when one of our children dies? Of course. But we don't sorrow like the world sorrows because we know we are going to see this child again. So when it comes to the topic of death, we need to keep a biblical perspective. And remember that believers in Jesus Christ are leaving this world behind for a much better one. Uh, Hallelujah for that. A second way God uses suffering for good is this. God uses suffering to draw prodigals back to himself. God uses suffering to draw prodigals back to himself. Many prodigal sons and daughters who would have been content to continue running away from God have been drawn back to him through some adversity. Perhaps you'll recall in Jesus' story of the prodigal son, in Luke chapter 15, that it was not until that prodigal son began to be in need and found himself eating the food that the pigs ate that he then came to his senses and finally came running home to his father. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Notice that. This is, a, this is an important verse. Sometimes it is the will of God for us to suffer. Why? Well, because it often produces repentance. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Oh, before, before God afflicted me, I was just doing my own thing, going astray and just living it up. Ah, that all changed, he says. He says, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. In faithfulness, you afflicted me. Are you suffering in some way during this season of life? If you are, I encourage you to examine your life. Your suffering may be from the Lord for the purpose of waking you up to some activity that he wants you to abandon. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. You can barely hear him. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I agree with C.S. Lewis. Pain does have a way of waking people up. It's wisely been said that some people will not look up until they are flat on their back. Suffering can shock people out of their indifference to spiritual matters and cause them to reconsider. Now, it's important, though, to point out that although God does use suffering sometimes in this way, a person's suffering is not always related to some unrepentant sin in their life. Please don't uh, go away with that uh, impression. And the reason why I say that is because 
there are times when God will even afflict the person who is walking perfectly upright with him. Psalm 34, verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So even the child of God who is walking uprightly with the Lord will occasionally encounter suffering or experience suffering. Job, of course, would be a classic biblical example of this. He was a God-fearing, godly man, and yet even he experienced some suffering. And there are good reasons why God even permits the upright to suffer. Number three, if you're taking notes, suffering can help bring praise and glory to God. Suffering can help bring praise and glory to God. We read of one example in John's gospel, chapter 9. In John 9, it says in verse 1, that as Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Living with blindness, can we all agree that that would be difficult? Okay, this is not something you wish to be born with. So this is a, this is a trial. Uh, there was a man who was born blind from birth, verse 2, and his disciples, Jesus' disciples, asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? See, they have the same misunderstanding a lot of people have today, that this person's suffering must be related to some sin in his life or maybe his parents' life, and that's why God, out of his anger, was just afflicting him with blindness. They had it completely wrong, and Jesus corrects them. Verse 3, Jesus answered, he said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. God providentially allowed this man to suffer with blindness from the time of his birth, not because of sin in his life or any sin in his parents' lives, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the same is true with your suffering, your trial, your suffering, your affliction sets the stage for God to do an amazing work, maybe even a miracle, and thereby bring great glory and praise and thanksgiving to him. I think of what God did for years in and through the life of Corey Ten Boom after the years that she spent suffering in a Nazi prison camp. I just finished a biography on Corey Ten Boom. I had known a little bit about her over the years. I just read a biography about her. Blown away. What an amazing work God did with her life after her time of suffering. Boy, it set the stage for her to have a worldwide audience, even with kings and presidents all over the world. She got to share the gospel with people. An amazing story. I think of the wonderful things God is doing and has already done through this young lady, Bethany Hamilton, after her shark attack at the age, I think it was 13, and the loss of her left arm. What a role model she has turned into for young girls. Do young girls need some godly role models today? (laughs) Absolutely. And the examples are countless of how God's used people who've suffered in great ways. There's a fourth way God uses suffering for good. If you're taking notes, God uses suffering to shape your character. God uses suffering to shape your character. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says that God is seeking to conform each one of us into the image of his 
beloved son, Jesus. He's trying to, he's, he's attempting to chisel away at your life and my life to make us look more like Jesus. And one of the ways that he molds and shapes us is through trials and tribulation. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, we also rejoice, or at least we should, in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. This is one of just many verses in the Bible that let us know that God is using the difficulties and trials in our lives to work all kinds of good things into our character. Things like patience, humility, compassion, kindness, sympathy for others, a longing for heaven, a greater dependence on God, and so on. Do you find yourself lacking any of these at any time? I know I do. Well, one of the ways God gets us to look more like Jesus, a lot more like that, is through different trials, different times of tribulation and suffering. So, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, don't lose heart if you are during a season of suffering. If you're not suffering currently, soon enough you will be. Because that's the kind of world we live in. And when it comes, you may not know what God is doing. Oftentimes we don't. We we don't know what God is doing. We, We feel as baffled perhaps as Joseph probably felt. Sitting in that Egyptian prison. He was sold into slavery and captivity by his older brothers. Yet years later, Joseph was able to say to the very people who inflicted this trial upon him. He says it was actually to save lives that God not you you guys thought you sent me down to this place but I see what was really going on it was God and it was to save lives that he sent me here ahead of you he says you intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives Joseph rightly saw that God had sovereignly worked in the midst of the suffering to bring about great good, the saving of many lives. And the Bible is full of accounts like these that remind us of God's amazing ability to accomplish great good in the midst of our trials and suffering. We see this, of course, in a very clear way uh, in the suffering that Jesus endured. Do we have a Lord and Savior who suffered himself? We do. The arrest, mistreatment, and murder of Jesus was the biggest crime committed in the history of the human race. Think of it. Sinful, evil men mocking their creator, leading him away to die an excruciating, horribly cruel death, nailed to a wooden cross where he hung bleeding to death, struggling to breathe. This is the grossest, most vile sin ever perpetrated by the human race. And yet, the Bible teaches that it was through Jesus' suffering that God brought about the greatest good that has ever occurred. Because of Jesus' suffering, the Bible says that you can now have your sins forgiven. God allowed the evil actions 
of men to help accomplish his goal in making a way of salvation possible for you and me. What an amazing God we have. If God can bring about this incredible good, forgiveness and everlasting life for sinners from the greatest evil ever done, surely he can work in the midst of your suffering. And indeed, that is what he is doing. So, brothers and sisters in the faith, I encourage you in closing, as you walk through the valleys of life, on your way to that glorious, everlasting city of the living God. Remember that you are walking with a God who knows what it's like to suffer. You're walking with a God who won't ever leave you or forsake you in the midst of your suffering. You're walking with a God who's working all things together for good in the lives of those who love him. And you're walking with a God who has a glorious future for you, free from evil and suffering, you are in the very hands of your creator. So I exhort you to trust him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for what a wonderful, loving, and trustworthy God you are. Paul asked, what shall separate the child of God from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of those things shall separate us from you. In fact, in them we are even more than conquerors, the Bible says, through you who love us. Hallelujah for that. And God, we do thank you this morning for your word on this topic. You haven't left us in the dark regarding suffering. And God, we're thankful that we don't have to suffer alone. You've promised to never leave us or forsake us. You've promised to work all things together for good. What precious promises those are. And Lord, we do pray for any here today or uh, in this fellowship. Maybe they won't even be able to make it to church today. Lord, who are suffering. God, we lift them up before you right now, God. For those who need healing, Lord, we pray for your touch on them. Uh, Lord, those who are suffering with maybe a drought in finances, God, we pray for provision for them. For those who need restoration, perhaps, for a broken heart, Lord, we pray that you would bring emotional and spiritual healing to them. Lord, you know the situations and the needs here in this place, God. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would minister by your spirit to our brothers and sisters. And God, maybe there would be a person here today who's in need of salvation, healing from sin. God, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, that you would help them to turn to you today and to call upon your name and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, work in their lives to that end, we pray as well. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Like to quickly point out that we have DVDs of this presentation. So if you'd like to share a copy of this with a friend or maybe who's someone who's wrestled with this issue, we have the whole presentation available on DVD. And then one other resource I'd like to quickly highlight is this uh, tiny USB drive. We've got some of them back there 
on my resource table. But if you stop by the table, we have 31 different DVDs out now on different apologetic topics. Apparently, you guys have watched some of them here in the past. But with technology now, we've been able to take all of our DVDs and put them on a tiny little USB thumb drive the size of a AA battery. You can stick that thing right into the USB port on your television and pull up any of our videos there. Or you can even stick it into uh, the USB port on your computer, whether it's a Mac or a PC, and pull up the videos there. And you can even transfer them off of your computer and sync them right up with your iPad or smartphone or however you like to consume video media today. So if you'd like to get further equipped to contend for the faith and um, become better able to talk to people about these kinds of issues, I thought I'd highlight those resources for you today. Uh, thanks for your time. It's been a blessing to share uh, the morning with you. I'll hand things back over to Pastor Rob.